This is episode 282 of Alohomora for October 12th, 2019. Welcome to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's in-depth exploration of the Harry Potter series. Uh, we're excited to share today's episode with you. I'm Allison Sigurd. Uh, I'm Beth Warsaw. We will also have uh, Irvin on in a little bit. He is stuck in traffic in New York. So sorry, Irvin, for that experience that you're Come having. Come on, Irvin. <laughs> pass your apparition <laughs> test already. <laughs> so hopefully we'll have him in a little bit. Um, in the meantime, um, and also for the rest of the episode, um, <laughs> we have... <laughs> We have Mike Schubert here with us, um, and many of our listeners will probably already know who you are, but would you like to introduce yourself, Mike? Yes. Hello. Hi. I'm Mike Schubert. I make the Potterless podcast. I also took the subway today, and I didn't get trapped on it, so I don't know what Irvin's doing, but he's probably taking <laughs> one of the bad trains. Uh, yeah, so I, I make the show Potterless, which I never read the Harry Potter books as a kid, so it documents me reading them and making my way through the series for the very for the very first time as an adult. And each week I sit down with a different guest, every different level of Harry Potter fanatic, and just go through the series a couple chapters at a time. I very recently finished the books, which is why I'm now on this podcast and uh, trying to, you know, like be a part of the bigger Harry Potter conversation because now I'm a spoiler-free boy. Uh, so if you check out Potterless right now, I just did my first episode about the movies and then I'll do the spinoff books and the theme parks and all eat birdie bots beans and watch a very potter musical the whole deal and if you just search potterless anywhere it'll show up so you're gonna have some interesting insight on uh what we're talking about today because yeah. our chapter is goblet of fire chapter 34 which is priory incantatum which is a short but a meaty chapter yeah and the title is latin yes yeah. which is it's latin for uh the song from before which i know because I took Latin for three years in high school. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Well, that's very applicable to the purpose of this uh, phenomenon, which um, I have to say, this chapter title is very helpful for me. Usually I'm really bad at uh, identifying <laughs> a chapter by its title, and this one makes it really easy. So thank yeah. you. Except for, <laughs> except for this, the title like has no explanation in the chapter it's just there and we don't find out that what it means true. for like three more chapters <laughs> the chapter titles are always so interesting because they either are incredibly obvious like the quidditch world cup or they are incredibly <laughs> vague like priorian cantatem or there's something incredibly minor and sometimes even they're named one thing to make you think like they are something else like i remember in one of the books the chapter where you first learn about it's, I don't think it's when you first learn about Spew, but it's called the House Elf Liberation Front. Yes. And that's just a joke yeah. that Ron makes towards Hermione. So there's like <laughs> the chapter titles are like podcast titles where it, it, they're very not helpful, but they're funny sometimes. So uh, I love that. Awesome. <laughs> and listeners, if you want to listen to us talk about this the first time we went through the books, that's all the way back in episode 72. 72. March of 2014. How many decades ago was that? <laughs> Five and a half years ago. What? Um, and the episode is called Pope Potter. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense, and we all definitely know what the title means. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> 
Yeah, I have the same problem with the Lohamore episodes. I cannot <laughs> go back and find things based on what they're called. I can't either. <laughs> and before we get started, we just want to remind you that this episode is sponsored by Manitota, and it is their second time sponsoring on Patreon. Yay! Yay! Thank you. Claps. You listeners, remember you can become a sponsor for as little as $1 a month, and we continue to release exclusive tidbits for sponsors. Visit patreon.com slash to find out more. Hello, Alohomora listeners. This is Patrick, the editor, and I wanted to apparate in real quick to tell you that Irvin wanted to do the shout-out Maxima so bad, he asked Allison and Beth to wait until he got there. So these next two segments are going to have Irvin in them, even though he wasn't technically here yet at this point. I think there was some sort of a mention of a time-turner, and anyway, you guys get to hear about some very pleasant-smelling Death Eater dancers, so uh, make sure you stay tuned for that. Anyway, I just wanted to let you guys know what was going on. Uh, thank you very much, and I'm out of here. And now it's time for our shout-out, Maxima, uh, for episode 280, discussing chapter 9 of Sorcerer's Stone. And our shout-out, Maxima, actually goes to our guest host, Ashley, who had yet more great points in the comments. Or you might know her in the comments as, so... <laughs> Ashley said, In regards to Hermione's disinterest in befriending the fat lady, despite making more of an effort with Phineas later, one thing I meant to say is that it could possibly be because Phineas is a principal. We know that the amount of personality a portrait has is greatly dependent on the amount of time and magic put into it, and therefore the Hogwarts headmasters have more personality than a regular portrait. We assume, because we've spent more time around her, that the fat lady is more of a headmaster-like portrait. However, I wouldn't be surprised if Hermione just saw her as a very advanced lock, rather than a person, as she is one of those characters who remains very one-dimensional, even in later books. Um, and then she also talks about the fact that when McGonagall does pass... Her personality will always be around, preserved as a headmistress portrait. And isn't that just wonderful to think Aww. about? That brings me so much joy. Right. We just need Minerva McGonagall around forever. Um, but yeah, so then that started a good conversation about Hermione's attitude towards portraits in general and why she seems to hold Phineas Nigelis in higher regard than the fat lady. Uh, Griffin Prefect and Spinner's End uh, contributed very good comments to the conversation. Um, including, uh, I think, Spinner's End said that, I definitely don't think Hermione would have talked to the portrait of Phineas Nigelis if she'd had any other choice. He was a source of information for her, that was all. The fat lady didn't really have any information Hermione would have needed. And I agree with everything up until that last sentence. Do we really think the fat lady didn't have any good information she could have shared with the trio? Because, like, she's, she's seen a, a lot of comings and goings at Hogwarts. She's a gossip, so obviously she knows things. Yeah, she probably mm -hmm. does, but she's probably just one of those sources they never thought to ask. She may not be yeah. the most trustworthy. Like, she may she may yeah. be sort of a rumor mill more than a source of truth. Yeah, because I, I love when we see her gossiping with Violet uh, in Goblet of Fire. It's so much oh, fun. Oh, Violet. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know more about Violet. I want the spinoff about Violet. <laughs> Probably. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree with the point that Hermione was completely uh, desperate for someone, anyone to talk to during the Deathly Hallows camping trip. Uh, when she talks to Phineas Nigelis, like, it, it was just her and Harry, and I think they were both going completely stir-crazy out in the wilderness. Uh, so yeah, I think Hermione would have talked to literally anyone or anything if it was there. Maybe. As always, thank you to our listeners for continuing the conversation over on the main site. Yeah, great job, you guys. And now, uh, before we dive into the chapter discussion, we want to talk to you about our sponsor, Native Deodorant. Uh, you guys have heard us talk about this a lot, 
but we're just going to talk about it some more because it's amazing. So Native creates simple, effective products for people to use every day uh, with trusted ingredients. This deodorant actually works, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, but just know that it's not just the people on the podcast who love it. They have over 8,000 five-star reviews all over the internet. They have simple ingredients, so you know everything that you're actually putting on yourself. And there's no aluminum in the deodorant, uh, which is great because apparently there's health ramifications if you use aluminum. And they come in a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women, including coconut and vanilla, lavender and rose, so when I have uh, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. And they offer free returns and exchanges in the U.S. So guys, let me tell you, this deodorant works like magic. Uh, a few of you may know that I have a wizard dance troupe, the Dancing Death Eaters, where we do ballroom dance numbers to wizard rock songs about Death Eaters. I did not know and this. I did not either, and that sounds like the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Thanks very much. This is now an ad for the Dancing Death Eaters. Everyone in New York City should join. We practice every Wednesday. Anyway, uh, we're throwing a concert in November called Avada Kedavrak. Wizard rock's so good you'll just die. And I am driving my dancers really hard. We are rehearsing for hours, and let me tell you, we are sweating. We are sweating, like, an unseemly amount. Like, you know those, like, dance movies where everyone, like, looks all sexy in the setting sun when they dance? No, it ain't like that. It ain't sexy. <laughs> but I was rehearsing uh, the other week, and someone made a comment about how sweaty we were, and I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I smell amazing. And they're like, no. So then everyone was sniffing my armpit, and they're like, oh my god, you do smell amazing. I'm like, I know, right? Uh, so now I'm making all my dancers get this deodorant, so now we all are going to smell amazing at dance practice and at Avada Kedavrak. So if you want to smell as amazing as a dancing Death Eater, you should get native deodorant. We have a special offer for listeners of the show. Um, for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code OPEN during checkout. Uh, that's uh, O-P-E-N, all caps lock. Uh, and then when you do, tell us how great you smell afterwards. Awesome. And now that we're all smelling fresh, let's go to a really gross place like the graveyard of Little Hangleton. <laughs> We're also going to need a time turner because uh, Irvin is going to go away again. Yep. Oh. And now I am going away, but I will be back shortly whenever the train actually gets me to my computer. But I just had to pop in to tell you guys how great native deodorant is. Okay, bye. Three turns should do it. Chapter revisit. Chapter 34. And with that, we will jump into our chapter for this week. So our summary. Having just watched his greatest enemy be resurrected, a traumatized and injured Harry prepares to fight for his life in the graveyard of Little Hangleton. For the first and last time, he doubts the power of Expelliarmus, but the simplest of spells works. A strange magical phenomenon that we are not told the name of at this time occurs, and the twin cores connect. The remnants of Voldemort's last victims appear to give Harry strength and direction, and causing one of the most infamous writing mistakes of all time. Bolstered by this, Harry escapes Voldemort and, honoring Cedric's last request, returns to Hogwarts. 
this is a very action-packed chapter, and I had kind of forgotten that. <laughs> like, yeah, it's intense. And it goes by fast. Right. I was flabbergasted because I, I remember getting the email, and it was like, read the chapter. And I was like, read the chapter. And then I was like, oh, wait, this chapter is so short. <laughs> like, it was <laughs> shocking. And things yeah. are just happening. I mean, nonstop. And it's like... It starts in the middle of everything. I mean, like, right. Harry's already been in the graveyard for a significant amount of time at this point. Like, It starts in the middle of action and ends in the middle of action. Yeah. Like, right. It's just right right there in the middle. That was the thing that I forgot just because, as you mentioned, it's, it's hard to remember exactly by the chapter title. Oh, this is exactly where it starts. Because mm-hmm. I imagined it being the whole thing of grab the port like i thought it was going to start with grab the port key but uh right. i when i started reading it, it was like wormtail with the silver hand i was like oh he's already got it wow okay cool <laughs> it's almost like joe wanted to tell us like this is important what is yeah. happening here in this chapter is important and it doesn't go with the other things it needs to stand out. It's yeah. like a commercial break in an episode of, <laughs> of Game of Thrones or something like that, where it's not so big that you can wait in between episodes, but you want some sort of, hey, before we get into this, take a second to collect your thoughts and watch this Hulu ad. <laughs> it's it's also interesting, too, I think, because it's critical to everything. I mean, it, it truly is like a climactic moment. Everything has led up to this through the past four books and everything is going to revolve around this from now on. You know, I mean, this is the moment where Harry ruins the plan, Voldemort's plan. Right. And he's going to go back and he's going to set everything up for everything he's going to have to do for the next three years. And it's, it's so critical and it's, it's fascinating. And I don't know. There's just so much in so little time span. And when you're actually reading it, it's like, Oh my gosh, it's done. You know, like, Bam, 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 we're done. This is where Harry proves himself, too. Yes. Every time he's faced Voldemort up until now, you know, Voldemort has not been at his full strength or he was a baby. And how can he claim responsibility for that, that success? But here, Voldemort is at full strength. Harry is just all he's got is a wand and that's it. And he's able to get away. And that really says a lot about where this will take us moving forward. Yeah, this is also the first time that Harry didn't just get away and win by sheer dumb luck or someone else kind of saving his butt. And it reminds me of when Buzz Lightyear at the end of Toy Story actually flies instead of just falling (laughs) with style. Because in the beginning, like when he flies, quote unquote, you know, he jumps on the Hot Wheel car and gets stuck on the thing in the ceiling and doesn't actually do anything. And then at the end of the movie, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen Toy Story, he actually flies with Woody saving the day and, and everything like that. So this is the first time where Harry actually has to use magic against the most powerful person slash his enemy, his rival, and he does it. And there's no Fox saving him or he finds out that if he touches the bad guy, boils come like it's just pure. He does a spell and uses strategy to get away just in time. That was not the comparison I was going to make. <laughs> that was great. And yet the the really special thing about this is that Harry doesn't like pull out some badass magic that's like we can't believe he knows how to do right like Mm -mm. this is just sheer determination like sheer willpower him just like surviving and getting through the moments and this this is why when everybody in order of the phoenix in dumbledore's army 
is like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know how to do anything. Like, I just, I just make it up as I go and I try not to die. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, and just this chapter is, this is why he doesn't understand why everybody sort of puts him on a pedestal. I also think this chapter is not to like sound cliche, but the phrase that came to my head was this is the chapter where Harry goes from being a boy to being a man. Oh, like this the is bar, the chapter. It's the bar mitzvah chapter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking like stardust status. I don't know why that popped in my head. Um, because I think she focuses so long on this chapter on Harry making the decision. I mean, she has like, paragraphs where she's talking about Harry decided he was not going to like die fight. Like he was not going to die laying down like this. He was not going to die, not fighting. He was going to fight and he was going to die. And that was it, you know? And I think it's a fascinating preview of what's to come where at the end, I saw a lot of um, echoing of Deathly Hallows here at where at the end of Deathly Hallows, he knows he has to die and he has to accept that death. And that time he walks calmly into it. This time he's going to stand and he's going to fight. He's not quite to the point where he can walk calmly to it, but he he's he's at the point where he can stand and he can fight. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of things I want want to say, but I'm looking at the document. and I'm like, I should not say it until we get to discussion bullet point number four, where it is outlined. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go through some of these points. Um, So like we said, we start this chapter with a visit from our old rat um <laughs> wormtail and wormtail is still the coward of all cowards it's specifically mentioned like three times that he will not look at harry he doesn't look at anyone else he just like keeps his eyes on the ground and shuffles back and forth doing what he's been told to do and it's just like wormtail you're still the worst <laughs> the one thing that made me really sad about this chapter starting where it did was that we didn't get to my one of my favorite voldemort lines which is after wormtail cuts off his hand voldemort says something to the effect of like thanks for lending a hand which is oh so good but yeah wormtail sucks he's garbage he's just ugh. and and it's like him and umbridge Irvin was talking about this earlier today that like everyone agrees that that they just suck. <laughs> yeah. That they're the worst and there's no debating. They're, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone who's like, actually, Wormtail might be good inside. <laughs> we gave him a chance. You would think some of these people that think Snape is good would defend Wormtail too, but here we are. <gasps> That's fascinating. I think it's well, because I, Wormtail's I, motivation isn't as like... He didn't have a crush on somebody's mom. <laughs> <laughs> It's not compelling enough. <laughs> yeah, did, did Wormtail... That's that's something that kind of stinks is that... Do we ever learn why Wormtail flipped? Or is it just generic want to be powerful and evil kind of thing? Like he had Fear no, he and had cowardice. No, yeah, he had no motivation, right? They never go into that. I think they talk about, like, serious mentions. He's like, you were always the one to go after the biggest bully on the playground to go follow him. Um, Sirius and Lupin kind of dig him for that. That they're like, you're you're... You've always been the type to go cower behind whoever you think is the most powerful. Uh, okay. And that's what you did then, too. You know, um, it, it's cowardice. That's what it is. Yeah, I knew a guy in high school like that. By the way, Mike, I found the quote that you were talking about. Um, oh, and yes. And 
I'm just trying to make sure Voldemort says this. I think he does. It's a little hard to say uh, without reading back. But I knew that to achieve this, it is an old piece of dark magic, the potion that revived me tonight. Yes. Okay. I would need three ingredients. One of them was already at hand. Was it not, Wormtail? Uh, Flesh given by a servant. Uh, 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 Tom uh, Riddle pulling out the pun. Oh, uh, he's so good. <laughs> like, I know we're not supposed to like Voldemort, but his, oh, uh, his theatrics are incredible. I actually kind of love how Ray Fiennes in the movie says kind of a similar thing, right? Where was it hand, says, wasn't it, Wormtail? Uh, where he's, he's like, the other hand. And like just the way he delivers that line cracks me up every time. Also, why does Ray Fine spell his name Ralph? What's up with that? Have we? It's a British thing. That, it's a British pronunciation. I see. There's uh, that's that's just a different word, man. Because <laughs> like, it's pronounced like Rafe. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. if his last name wasn't Fines, it would stand out differently. Yes. Oh, uh, we do. Yes. We just combine. Oh, I was uh, okay. Got it. I always imagined it was Ray <laughs> Fines, but he spells it Ralph. No, no, Ray Fines. Ray, Ray yeah. Fines. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Wormtail uh, cuts Harry free, um, and Harry James Potter, for the one and only time in his entire life, doubts that Expelliarmus could be the best spell to use. <laughs> it was so <laughs> funny going back and reading this because I have not reread the books truly since I finished. So anytime I Which, do something. You'll have so much fun doing that. I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done <laughs> you'll like, notice so many new things. I know. I've done it like a little bit with, I did a couple look back episodes of Potteros where I talked with the old guests for the first 30 episodes because those were three years ago. But mm-hmm. I didn't get to this part. So it was so funny for the duels about to begin. And then Harry thinks to himself, oh, he Harry wished he had learned more than dueling class. The only spell that he had bothered to learn was Expelliarmus. <laughs> It's like, dude, that's all you need, dog. You're good. It's ring theory. Like, that'd be like if if Steph Curry was in some basketball game and was like, oh, no, the only thing Steph Curry knew how to do was shoot three pointers. That's not going to be useful. It's like, no, dog, that's your thing. It's cool. It is, though. It's it's very much um, the the ring that's tying this book to uh, book two. Um since this is one that lines up, well, they all line up with four eventually. But mm-hmm. he specific that specific mention of the dueling club. We just recorded um, the second part of Ring Theory the other day for me. Um, so I, yeah, it was kind of fun to pick up on that to be like, oh, specific mention of the dueling club connecting this to book two. <laughs> Does this actually line up right, or is it a little off? I didn't check, but I I know like I mean the basic block out of books, you know, how they, how like book four is the center and everything, there's connections right. in all parts of it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that very specific mention, I'd have to check if it lines up with chapters and things, but it's okay. Our listeners will do it for you. I'm yes, sure. they will. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm sure John's already done it. <laughs> it does really tie into the later books, especially since I just finished seven is that when you go back and you or when you're first reading, it's like, wow, Harry, for someone who has no idea what's going on, really finds a way to make sure everything's OK. And then now after reading seven, you're like, ah, the power of love, much like Huey Lewis in the news talked about, is incredibly strong here. Like the whole Lily sacrifice thing is really strong here. And it's Ooh, I, I actually think it's not. Oh, I mean, the, a lot goes right for Harry here. And I would like to think that it is. But I'm excited to hear you say why you think it is not. 
It has to do with a mistake, actually. So I'll bring oh, that up when we get interesting, there. Interesting, interesting. Um, okay, and that's wait, the so, recording. So, Mike, when you say the 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 Lily sacrifice thing is strong here, mm-hmm. are you talking about that like her protection of Harry is strong here, or is that like is that what you mean? Yeah, just because I I think the way the thing that I'm that it makes me think of is when it's kind of like when Voldemort tries to do the um I think when Voldemort tries to do Crucio tomb in book seven and Harry just doesn't feel anything and then all the stuff later on when he's trying to silence the crowd and all kind of stuff like that <gasps> I know part of it's Elder Wand and and part of it is after Harry's sacrifice but I think it's just something that you could allude to is it seems like things just happen to go right for Harry here and there and wait yeah wait 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 sorry mm-hmm. you just triggered something in my head uh-huh I just realized that in the ring of one, four, and seven, Harry is able to fight off all three uh, unforgivable curses. So in one, it's Avada Kedavra. In this one, it's the Imperius curse. And in seven, it's the Cruciatus curse. Holy Ooh. crap. Whoa. I just realized that, that, it, that throughout the course of these, Harry overcomes all three. <laughs> in, uh, in his three big fights with Voldemort. Holy crap! Okay. <laughs> that's real cool. Yeah, that's dope. That's the first time I've ever realized that. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm so sorry to cut you See? off, but no. I just freaked out. This is why I'm here, the boy that knows nothing about Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm here to open the eyes. Anymore. I know I can't. It's so strange that like my whole branding was like, oh, I don't know anything. So now it's like, I know more than most people. <laughs> <laughs> It's very, it's very strange. I got to start doing Harry Potter trivia and just winning free bar certificates everywhere. Oh, you absolutely should. Yeah, unless they're wrong. (laughs) But yeah, I I guess like it's not necessarily 100% of why things go right for Harry. But I think, I think part of the explanation, at least to me, of why things seem to go right for him. It's almost like a, it's almost like a love version of Felix Felicis where I think that, that Lily's, protection and and that being in Harry and now we know in Voldemort too, I think can kind of, at least one interpretation could be to explain that a reason why stuff seems to go right for Harry and wrong for Voldemort when the two of them fight is because of Lily. Well, and we can even sort of extrapolate that a little bit more generally to compare this to when Voldemort tries to possess Harry and the way that Harry gets him out is by thinking about all the people that he loves and cares about and who love him. Um, And the difference between Harry and Voldemort in this moment is that Harry has a life to fight for and he has people that he loves to fight for. And this chapter doesn't really talk about that, um, but he's so much stronger than Voldemort in this moment. And Voldemort is powered by his rage and his need to prove his power and, you know, showing off for his Death Eaters and making sure that everybody knows that he's the strongest one. Um, And all Harry wants to do is live and get back to his life. Um, And I think that really... That really sets them apart, and it's not the first time, and it will absolutely not be the last time that that sets them apart. It's fascinating, too, because I think, now that you bring that up, the next point was that I thought of while I was reading this that I don't think I'd ever thought of before was um, Voldemort is a very psychological torturer at the same time, Um, and he's really showing it in this chapter, and but but it kind of backfires on him 
because oh, it completely backfires. Yeah, on him. because he invokes. So at the beginning, he invokes Dumbledore, and he invokes James. Like, he's trying to taunt Harry about how he's going to fail, right? Like, he's going to fail. Like, his heroes have failed. He's never going to live up to these men in his life specifically, which we're also going to get back to that when we talk about the mistake. <laughs> because I, it definitely changes things. Um, and how he spends this time being like, are you going to stand up and fight like your father? Dumbledore would want you to do this. You can't blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it backfires because hearing about those people and remembering those people is what gives Harry his strength to stand up and fight. Just so we have the context, um, the reference to Dumbledore is um, when Voldemort is trying to get Harry to bow and he says, um, Dumbledore would like you to show manners. Bow to death, Harry. Um, and then later with James, he says, um, and now face me like a man, straight-backed and proud, the way your father died. Yeah, that's it. So, so it's it's fascinating because Voldemort thinks here I'll poke fun at the men that you admire the most, and he thinks it's going to make Harry feel inferior. But instead, it it strengthens Harry. It makes him remember why he wants to fight. I think Harry thinks about Cedric too. He does in this moment, doesn't he? Where he's like. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to die and I'm going to die as strong as Cedric was or something like that, right? I just read this yesterday. I should remember this. He <laughs> <laughs> said something like that. I mean, to me, it's like Voldemort doing this is like when people in Back to the Future movies call Marty McFly chicken. They're trying to belittle him, but it backfires <laughs> so hard because it's the only fuel that he needs to overcome Biff Tanner. <laughs> and it's actually kind of funny, too, because... Um, in almost an ironic fashion, Crouch Jr. has ruined some of Voldy's fun here um, yes, by he teaching has. teaching Harry to resist that imperious curse. Um, so again, as also blowing my mind that it's like the second step in Harry overcoming all the unforgivables. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going to let that go. That's amazing. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But it, it's, it's kind of funny that Crouch Jr. Ruined that, you know, like Voldemort can't torture Harry this way because um, his own quote unquote best deputy at this point. Taught him how to overcome it. Have we ever talked about how overcoming the Imperious Curse actually works? Maybe, but not for a long time. Because this chapter makes it seem like it's just innate in Harry. Like, he doesn't do it intentionally. It just sort of happens. Um, it, is it just, like, a strength of will? Like, if you're strong enough, you'll be able to fight it? Or is Harry just on instinct doing something that he doesn't realize he's doing. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's strength of will, and I think it's that practice he's had. Yeah, I think the practice is huge because what happens when he hears the voice, he knows what's happening. He doesn't have the confusion of wondering what's going on. He understands when Voldemort is saying, just give up, just give up, just give up. He knows that it's someone else telling him to do it to try to get at a means to an end, et cetera, et cetera. So I think at the very least, by Barty Crouch Jr. disguised as Moody teaching him how it works, Harry is able to more easily recognize what's happening and then try to fight it with his strength of will. It doesn't feel as intentional as that. Like, like that makes it sound like Harry was like, ah, this is the Imperious Curse. I know what to do with that. But 
instead it's more like um like he's feeling washed over with Voldemort's directions and he kind of wants to follow them. And then something out of his control in the back of his mind goes, no, you don't want to do that. And he's like, oh, you're right. I don't. (laughs) I think it's a reflex. Like I said, I think he went through it so many times because remember it specifically mentions that Moody put him through it over and over and over again until he could finally completely throw it off because he showed that aptitude um, during that lesson. So I think it, it, it's almost a reflex in the back of Harry's mind where like his mind just knows someone's trying to attack you like this. We throw it off, right? We say, no, we, we cancel that. (laughs) Um, I think, I think it's a reflex. Okay. So one of my favorite things about this chapter is that Voldemort could totally have just killed Harry right at the beginning of this chapter, if not before. Uh, He had so many opportunities to kill Harry. Harry is defenseless. Even just the act of killing Harry would have shown his strength to the Death Eaters that were there with him. But instead, he has to, like, put on this whole show and... Urban was calling it Tony Award winning, which I think <laughs> is hilarious. Tony's JK will be rolling in them. Everyone, please go listen to Pigeons. <laughs> it's a really good song. But yeah, like he had so many opportunities and instead he's just playing with his food and then Harry gets away and he's like, what? Like, <laughs> could have been so different. He could dude. have just been killed the spare, killed the boy and the story is over. <laughs> right. Well, I think I think it's it's Voldemort's arrogance, you know, like he's so assured that he can kill Harry that he's like, I'll get there eventually. Let's have some fun first. I'm, you know, stretching my muscles. Like, can you Harry's 14? Like, I I don't blame Voldemort for thinking this. (laughs) Like, in theory, he should be able to stomp this dude. But I don't know. It comes to bite him in the butt. His hubris. He has to like teach Harry a lesson and strut around for a while first like yeah, I don't know it's excessive I, I think it's understand. I think it's his own ego too right where he's like of course maybe I couldn't beat him as a baby but guess what I'm gonna just thrash him around now and he's for you know like whatever yeah I mean he's it, embarrassed like, he's embarrassed by getting murdered by an infant so he really has to try to show him up before he kills him but oops didn't work which doesn't like it's amazing to me that that doesn't make him look so weak in front of his followers like right the fact i mean i guess he's pretty scary dude so they're all with him because they're afraid to not be but um if if that were me i would start thinking like ooh like <laughs> this is not going to be This guy great. couldn't beat a 14 year old with a really shaggy bowl cut something's going on here oh my gosh <laughs> That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to give Harry a haircut somehow. Doesn't every good leader know that they should delegate? Like, why doesn't Voldemort just delegate Harry's murder? Well, because he has to do it. And also, according to the prophecy, he has to do it himself. Yeah, but he doesn't know about the prophecy yet, right? He, no, he does. He does. He he doesn't know I mean, what the full prophecy is, but he knows that right. it's out there. He knows the first half of it. Right. And so he finally comes in to do something. And hey, guys, Quidditch training. 
It makes you an athlete. I hate this it bullshit. It gives you reflexes. I hate that they keep, they do this throughout the books a lot where Harry just does <laughs> something good and they have to go out of their way to say, because of his Quidditch training, it's like, come on, just, it's just, it, there's, he's not on a broom for any of this, so his Quidditch training taught him nothing about what he does here. I don't know, you know, core strength, quick movements. Harry has to do all sorts of weird things like balance on the end of his broom and like, you know, only in in the the film, only in the film. (laughs) He does roll in the air and do the sloth grip roll in the books. Yes. I'm I'm not saying that he's not not an athlete. He may not stand on his broom, but he definitely like has to, you know, sit in places where it's probably not particularly balanced. Right. I am not not disputing the the fact that it makes an athlete. I just first off, I don't I famously do not like Quidditch. And I just think that the two (laughs) books that don't have Quidditch in them, four and seven, I think really try to find excuses to get Quidditch at least referenced in it. And while I was reading them, I was very happy that or four, I guess four has the four has the World Cup of Quidditch, but not the houses playing against each other. But I just feel like they try to shoehorn because they do it in seven too. Harry does something else, and they and they say, it's "Oh, it's when, when he catches the wand in the big fight when Dobby shows up, and Ron and Hermione are there against Bellatrix. He catches the wand. It's like because of his Quidditch training, he get caught. It's like all right, maybe because of his general hand-eye coordination skill. <laughs> but it's because you can't console Quidditch. Uh, <laughs> Ever. You can and you should. No, no." <laughs> Well, J.K. Rowling would agree with you. That's what I don't get. She's like, why did she write so much? (laughs) (laughs) Because it was popular. Uh, And also because it usually has some sort of like plot. Ulterior motive. Happening in it. Because Oliver Wood is the greatest thing to ever happen. That's why. (laughs) He's fantastic. Gotta love him. I mean. (laughs) So Harry, Harry dives out of the way. And Voldemort keeps trying to taunt him. And then we get this very interesting line, which really stood out to me this time. Um, Voldemort is talking about killing Harry, obviously, because that's all he's talking about in this chapter. <laughs> His M.O. And, <laughs> and he says, it might be painless. I would not know. I have never died. That's a lie, dog. Have you not read book one? <laughs> well, he, he doesn't didn't technically I die. <laughs> I know. Um, and and that's, that's usually what people focus on. But what... what hit me this time was how it echoes the end of Deathly Hallows where Harry asks Sirius if it hurts to die and Sirius who has actually died is able to tell him it's quicker and easier than falling asleep so Irvin's still not here yet he's really close but I just (laughs) have to be Irvin for a second because he was so stunned by this (laughs) he uh, was absolutely amazed by this and I am too, but I just wanted to make sure he got in there. Yeah, he literally wrote in the doc, picks jaw up off the floor. Yeah, <laughs> I had never caught it before either until reading it this time. And I was like, I think because I had circle theory, ring theory on my mind, because I just recorded that one um, at the time of recording this. I recorded that like two days ago. And um, so I was thinking of all these things and just that that connection just clicked and I was like, oh, holy crap. Um, And it's just Voldemort fears the pain he imagines in death and he fears death and he uses that fear to try and hurt others and make them fear, right? Well, I think he also assumes that everybody fears death the way that he does. Yeah, but then when Harry is actually ready to sacrifice himself, 
and he does ask the question, someone who cares about him and who has actually gone through that is able to reassure him. And I was just like, oh. Well, and that's that's really interesting to to compare those two moments because in this moment, Harry is is willing to die because he kind of yeah. thinks that that's his only option. But he doesn't want to die. He's not ready to die. Um, he is is not willing to accept that fate for himself yet. And then when we get to Deathly Hallows, he knows that it is his only option. And mm -hmm. there is no debate about that. And he's able to accept it calmly mm -hmm. and... It's like such a different state of mind for Harry. And really the only difference is in one moment he thinks that there's even the slightest hope for a way to get out. Whereas in the other, he knows that there is no way out. He has to. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because this also ties back to the first book where Dumbledore tells him, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And there's just rings everywhere. They're just spinning <laughs> in this chapter over and over. The other difference between <laughs> this instance and the book seven thing is that at book seven, he at least knows of or thinks of a greater purpose for his death. Like he knows that by dying, That's it's part true. of the bigger plan. And he mm -hmm. knows that he's going to be saving people's lives and that there are lives at stake. And, and that's what helps him really come to accept it. It's that selflessness of not wanting other people to be in harm's way because of him. He intentionally gives them the love protection. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and then in this one, he doesn't have any sort of goal in mind when this is happening. Literally, his only justification for not cowering is that he doesn't want to die playing hide and seek like a little baby. He wants to go out defiantly like his parents did. So it's purely just, I want to stand up to evil because I am inherently good and that's how I should do. It's how the people that I respect have treated it. And there's nothing more than that. So I think that explains why in Seven, why he has that greater acceptance of it because he knows that it fits into a bigger picture. It fits into Dumbledore's plan. It foils Voldemort's plan, et cetera, et cetera. Does this, however, because Harry has accepted death at this moment. Sure. Not quite as much as he will in Deathly Hallows, but does that acceptance help with the Priory and Cantatum? Do you think? I don't, I don't know. I have so many questions about how Priory and Cantatum works. Yeah, it's so confusing. Yeah, I don't know that, that I don't know that Harry's intention has anything to do with the effectiveness of that particular magic of the spells matching and hitting the wands, etc. Um, but I do think it helps his frame of mind to if you're already like he already thinks I am going to die. So he thinks, ah, screw it. Uh, I'll just go out here and do my best. So because he's he, like, he's already accepted that he's not going to walk out of this alive. So he's just going to try to go out like a champ. But I don't know that he really has an effect on the priori and cantatum. Also, I have no idea how that stuff works at all. So I am not the expert here to say, but I don't really think so. I feel like that's just a wand spell hitting magic thing. It's okay. That's what we do here on this podcast is we're about to dive into uh, how this magic good, works. Good, good. <laughs> we, we talk about things with uh, very little to back it up and just speculate wildly. <laughs> Speculation, wild extrapolation from 
some interview Joe did 15 years ago, you know. I feel like there should be a bound book of things JK said in interviews. I know that the wiki, I guess, kind of does this. But in a recent episode of Potterless, I said something like, oh, I, I wish that Neville and Luna got together and not Neville and Dean. And everyone on the Internet was like, what are you talking about? She ends up with Rolf Scamander. And I was like, what book did you guys read? Because that wasn't anywhere in there. And then it was the Harry Potter lexicon. Yeah, is what it was, you need it to was in some interview, she said, where she was talking about Luna's future. Like, I don't, uh, I'm sorry. But yeah, I feel like for my personal reference as Harry Potter podcast. Podcast host, I would love a, a bound book of all the things she said so I can I can understand what is at least like Joe canon. Yeah, that would be that would be super helpful. I almost said wouldn't we all want that, but I actually know that that's not true. There are a lot of people who um, <laughs> do not believe that the things that she says outside the seven books are part of Harry Potter canon. Um, I mean, I don't think they should count as much. I think for some things it's okay. You know, I I have no problem with the Dumbledore being gay thing and just the delivery of it. I wish he had been more intentional about it. But it Mm -hmm. it does make things seem less impactful if you don't actually put it in the text or the film or whatever and you just say it because then it comes down to talking a big game versus putting your money where your mouth is she could say things in interviews all the time but then it, it doesn't have as high as stakes hi and Irvin all right so we finally have Irvin here with us so welcome hello Irvin. hello <laughs> listeners thank you thank you for having me we're glad you you uh made it on the muggle transportation yeah like I mean, wizard transportation sounds awful, but then you just take the New York City subway and you're like, you know what, fluid network, probably, probably a better (laughs) idea. I wonder if those have backups too. Oh gosh, probably. You'd get like (laughs) five people stacked up in a chimney. That sounds terrible. (laughs) Well, isn't that kind of what happens at the beginning of Goblet of Fire, where like everyone flews to the Dursleys and they're like, ow, ow, there's no room, ow. (laughs) Well, part of that's because the the Dursleys fireplace is boarded up, but that's... (laughs) Yeah. So they literally can't anyway, but now we're going. Yeah. So, you know, now when there's train traffic in New York, I'm just going to blame the Dursleys. Always a good idea. They they deserve it for some reason. So, yes, exactly. (laughs) All right. So let's dive deep then into what this chapter is named after, which, by the way, is not mentioned in this chapter. It's not mentioned for like another three chapters. Like what this actually is. It's a classic JK move. It's not mentioned until Dumbledore is like, that sounds like Priory and Cantatum. And everyone's yeah. like, say what? And then there's no explanation. In those moments, it always makes me want the books to break the fourth wall. So it's been four chapters and Dumbledore says, oh, that sounds like Priory and Cantatum. You know, from four chapters ago. <laughs> <laughs> just do like an office stare at camera. Yeah. <laughs> Harry just like looks at the camera. <laughs> yeah. If they ever do make a TV series out of HP, they should definitely do it that way. Oh, man. Just, just like confessionals to the camera. And Hermione would be like, and then I saved their ass again. But does anyone thank me? No. <laughs> Dumbledore, it's just a cut straight to Dumbledore. And I lied. And it cuts back away. <laughs> uh, Practically writes itself. A cut to Hagrid saying, I shouldn't have said that after literally every line that he says in the show. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So so let's talk about Priority Cantatum. Um let's do it. So first of all, just what it does. So the wands connect. 
Um, and they start vibrating a lot um, to the extent where Harry says he's like, he's afraid it's going to like fall out of his hands. Um, the light out of them turns golden. It lifts the two of them up and takes them elsewhere and then creates a barrier be- with, between Harry and Voldemort and the Death Eaters. So and there is Phoenix song. <laughs> Which obviously makes Harry feel very nice. Yeah. Um, well, it's the sound that he associates with Dumbledore. Yeah. Aww. And with people coming to save his butt. <laughs> Common theme. You yeah. Know? It's the end of the book. I'm fighting Voldemort or someone Voldemort adjacent. This is the part where a phoenix comes in and saves my butt. Yeah. And it, it just kind of happens. Like, there is there anything else in the books that's even close to this? This just weird magical phenomenon. Not like this exactly. Um, there are a lot of like weird magical phenomena. Weird unexplained things. I mean, a a prime example is when Harry's wand finds Voldemort's in Deathly Hallows. Um, yeah, that's another weird thing that's related to this somewhat. Um, also, it kind of pays. It's similar to the resurrection stone, where you get ghostly embodiments of people that yeah. are dead. Right. I More think, ring theory. I think probably like um, Voldemort's non-death when he attacks Harry and when he's a baby. I think that's another example of this, but we don't get to see it in such detail as we do here. Is right. that though? It's just like one of those like weird, unexplained, like, you know, rare phenomenons in the magical world. Okay, now that you bring that up too, nothing happens with the wands that signifies Voldemort's backfiring curse. We just kind of go straight from like Bertha Jorkins to Oh, that's interesting. She Wait. skipped that spell, that backfiring spell. Holy sh really? Yeah. 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 So we can get Wormtail's hand. That, that was wild to me. I totally forgot that that was a thing. The hand has a soul? Okay, that was ridiculous. Well, so I don't think the hand does have a soul. I think it is a regurgitation of every piece of magic because yeah. Yeah. we know that Priory Incantatum is related to um, the spell used by Amos Diggory to see if if Harry was the one that cast um, Mors Morda in the beginning of this book. Yeah, that's why we hear the screams of pain, because that's the Cruciatus being regurgitated. So it is all spells. Do we know that's for sure, though? I thought that was just the people dying. I thought that was, uh, like, anthropomorphizing. That's not how you say that. Um, yeah, it is. Voldemort's wand. Is it? Yeah. Anthropomorphous. Yeah. Anthropomorphous. You know what? You know what I mean? Anemone. Yep, it's getting late, guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, I always thought it was just Voldemort's wand. Oh, yeah. see, I, I always understood it as just regurgitating all the spells because the screams are the Cruciatus, the hand is making Wormtail's hand, more Cruciatus, and then the killing curse victims. But it still doesn't explain where's the backfired curse. What would the backfired no, curse be? Would it like how would that manifest itself as Voldemort dying? I, I don't know. <laughs> I I guess I always just assumed it was part of the James Lilly thing. But let's think for a moment about 
a situation where this phenomenon occurs, but no deaths have happened? Like, would would anything happen? Would it regurgitate? <laughs> it would be so funny just, if it was like, oh, this is the time that is say it's Moody versus someone. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the time Moody said Accio keys <laughs> because they couldn't find right. them. <laughs> oh, there's the time Moody sliced bread. <laughs> that's the point of it, though, is it tells you the last spell that a wand performed. Yeah. So it, it should hit all of them. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> we found another mistake in this chapter. Dang it. Well, well, how many spells does copy? he actually do? Think... Because he dies, and then this is his first time being back. I guess the thing is, how do we know what other spells Voldemort actually did with his wand? Like, could it could it be that well, stuff wasn't left out other than the rebounding one like you already identified? It's possible. So the rebounding one would look like... Voldemort's body, right? Because it destroyed his mm-hmm. body or something. Because because it bounced off Harry. So I maybe there was just a shadow Voldemort, and just he looked a lot like the real Voldemort, and Harry just didn't see clearly. That this this is really going to bother me now. Well, I mean, it could be something about because it it should technically theoretically be the Horcrux being killed, right? That 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 part of his soul died. That was in but, him, but the Horcrux it was wasn't created. Killed. No, no, sorry, sorry. I meant, I meant that part of his soul dying and being split. You're right, right, yeah. It's... So was it just like they're already here? We don't need to show this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it, maybe it did come out of the wand, but it was not like visually represented or something. I don't know, but, but, um. Someone said a second ago that, um, like, what happened to the other spells that Voldemort did with his wand? And I think it's totally plausible that he never used his wand in between those things. Because I think he, everything else that he would have needed to do would have thought was beneath him. Yeah, would have been delegated. Sure. Guys, I, I have I have an idea. Uh, so Dumbledore says, you and he are connected by the curse that failed. Maybe because the that Avada Kedavra meant for Harry technically counts as a failed spell. Hmm. Maybe that's why we don't say it. Maybe we only see successful spells. But it was successful because it's what destroyed the piece of soul inside Voldemort's body. But it didn't destroy that piece but of soul. But that's not that's, its intent well, either. Yeah, I think it's the intent thing because if the whole if the whole point of it is to show the past spells that you've done, it wouldn't show mistakes you've made because then it would be a, I don't know, if you were trying to do the thing genuinely, like the way they did it for the one that Winky was using, uh, it could be like, oh, this is the time you tried to do Sectum Sempra, but you mispronounced it. And that's the time you said Liviosa, <laughs> not Liviosa. <laughs> like, if you get any mistakes. And then you just see a buffalo on someone's chest oh, gosh. for that one. But you're right, Urban, so, I, I misspoke. So it, it didn't destroy his soul, it destroyed his body, but that maybe that means it wasn't successful because Avada Kedavra has to kill yeah. the soul. Well, I don't know. from the caster's point of view, that's very unsuccessful if it rebounds yeah. and kills your own body. <laughs> here's here's an interesting thing. So so right after Bertha Jorkins comes out and she says, don't let go now. She cried and her voice echoed like Cedric's as though from very far away. Don't let him get you, Harry. Don't How let go. How does she know Harry's she name? Me- How does she know okay, who Harry is? Okay, we're going to get to that. Hold on. <laughs> Everyone Hold on. We're knows there. Harry's name. We're the getting there bolts. because I brought that up. Okay, good, 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 good. Because that <laughs> anyway, was so confusing. She and the other... 
She and the other two shadowy figures began to pace around the inner walls of the Golden Web while the Death Eaters flitted around the outside of it. And Voldemort's dead victims whispered as they circled the duelers, whispered words of encouragement to Harry and hissed words Harry couldn't hear to Voldemort. Is that where it's coming in? Are, are the... What do we call these? Memories? Ghosts? Remnants? Shades. Shades? Okay. Shades is the term Dumbledore uses. Okay. Um, is that part of the... They're, Maybe they're recreating what he went through right after his soul and his body were ripped. Maybe that's part of what, what they do is maybe... I mean, I guess if he's in some sort of excruciating pain, maybe he's somehow connected to the dead too. I, I don't know. I'm way going out on a limb here. Um, <laughs> maybe that's part of what's happening there is that's recreating that moment. I don't know. <laughs> There's so much just left up to interpretation here. I'm really excited to read what our listeners think about how this works. Yeah. They're going to have so m- many smarter ideas. What was the one you said about they whispered <laughs> things to Voldemort that Harry couldn't hear? Is that what you said? Yeah, yes. they're like circling them. They whispered words of encouragement to Harry and hissed words Harry couldn't hear so, Voldemort. Okay, so it's funny that it's it says that they're circling. So I imagine they're circling, they're in a current, they can't really control it. So when they're passing Harry, they're like, yeah, Harry, you can do it, you can do it. And then once again in front of Voldemort, it's like, you suck, you're really bad at magic, your hair looks dumb, your nose is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't think they were like swept by anything i felt like they were pacing i've always yeah, imagined I also them thought they were pacing pacing more than anything you know like they're they're similar thing to like the resurrection stone where they're they're restless they're not necessarily supposed to be there but they know they have a job to do yeah. so they're they pace can we talk about the irony of them hissing words to voldemort because <gasps> this is a great word choice it's wonderful diction <laughs> wonderful so is, do we have anything else to say about this? Um, because it's one of those things where there's just not. Yeah. We just don't have enough information. Yeah, you'll, we'll, we'll talk ourselves dry about it because there's no answer. And I don't even know if JK knew what the answers were. She was just like, ah, here's some crap. Yeah, well, because she wrote Goblet of Fire in a year, like fourth book in four years. So I feel like she was just, uh, 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 no. And then and then some magic happened. Good. Send it yeah, to I printers. mean, she messed up the order of stuff. So clearly she wasn't fully there. Yeah. And, then, and that's why she's like, no, book five, you'll get book five when you get book five. And we did. It took three years. Um, so Priori and Cantatum, though, becomes important later on if we're doing circle theory again, because it's everywhere in this chapter, apparently, um, where Voldemort tries to avoid this happening again um, in Deathly Hallows. So he, ta- he takes Lucy's Malfoy's wand and he thinks that's going to stop the twin cores because that's what... Ollivander tells him. Um, but obviously we learned that Harry's wand absorbed some essence of Voldemort's power and it turns when it recognizes Voldemort again, which is like, okay, did Harry then spend like two and a half years with like some of Voldemort's power, just like as he's going about his lessons? Like, is this why he's better at things in the next few years? You know, he does become surprisingly good at magic after this. <laughs> so, well, I mean, he gets a textbook that tells him hmm. what to do, so. <laughs> this is so confusing to me. Is this something that Dumbledore anticipated about Priory Incantatum? No. Is this something that that just happens as part of Priory Incantatum? Or is it related to, like, how Harry and Voldemort have a relationship? Like, I'm so confused 
why this happens and also kind of annoyed that it's not brought up until a really long time later. And it's like, oh, by the way, like you just have some of Voldemort in your wand and you've had it there for a long time. (laughs) Well, okay, so Dumbledore definitely knew that Priori Incantatum was an applicable thing because Ollivander wrote to him about the wands and all that. So he definitely, I think, knew that that was a factor and was like, oh, good, that's like another, you know, win to put in my column. We have the protection of the twin cores. But I feel like he definitely didn't plan for it to happen. No. Um, Like, this is very much not Dumbledore style. Like, he much prefers controlled experiments. I also think he didn't know what would happen. I think this is one of those weird things where he doesn't, no, this is going to happen. And it, right. it, it almost right. mirrors... He has, a, he has a theory, but like yeah. he's not sure how it'll go. It's very conceivable that this has only happened, you know, one, two other times before. Times. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, it mirrors the fact that part of Voldemort's soul is in Harry, too. You know, like, it's... It's mirroring that, I think, which is something that Dumbledore definitely says, I have no explanation for this, really. I have a few theories, but, like, yeah, this has never happened before. <laughs> have fun! This makes me wonder if this, it, like, could be the kind of thing that the Department of Mysteries would study. Like, they know that this is some weird phenomenon that can happen, but they don't really know how it works. So they have some, like, you know, a, a pair of wands made that could have this happen, and then they do it see what happens and this is definitely one of the rooms for the unspeakables is just the let's try to make priori and cantatum happen room <laughs> i was gonna say the department of mysteries just definitely has a whole like subdivision to, devoted to harry and voldemort and they're just like what the hell happened just like people will like write thesis papers on it oh, the like, case studies <laughs> exactly it is the ultimate case study for the department of mysteries uh. I love it. And I would totally read those oh, thesis papers. Oh, a thousand percent. No Think about how much information they're missing, though, too. Yeah, honestly, we're probably better equipped to write them than anyone in the Wizard world. Imagine how many people's PhD theses in the future would just be about things that Harry Potter and Voldemort did. <laughs> like, yeah. so many. It, it's completely unprecedented, like, you know, bits of magic. 100%. Um, and just the way they all, like, combine and bounce off each other. Yeah. Like... Dumbledore had theories, but even he was like, ah, I can make a guess. (laughs) Dumbledore admits that his guesses are usually pretty good. I love, oh, that's one of my favorite lines. But being, forgive him, rather cleverer than most men, his mistakes tend to be correspondingly huger. (laughs) Uh, Urban, I hope you didn't have to look that up. I hope you just had that at the top of your head. Of course I did. (laughs) Good, that makes me happy. (laughs) Please, I, um, I got Dumbledore quotes ready to go for any situation. I know. Um, speaking of writing, actually, uh, something I picked up this time, I think because I just finished, by the way, book recommendation time, the Chaos Walking trilogy, which, by the way, all of you should read. Because oh, I've it, heard like, good things. Yeah. It like blew my mind. Um, but some of the writing style is similar to what's happening in this very tense action scene where she just keeps using ellipses like over and over. Dog, like JK loves ellipses and parentheses like no other. And I've noticed this in yes. Pottermore because I guess she doesn't have an editor, but it, everything that JK mm-hmm. Rowling has written on Pottermore has 7 million parentheses in it. It is buck yeah. wild. <laughs> 
It's like the mark of like a brilliant mind where you're just yeah. like, let me throw in all the information no matter how I have to get it there. <laughs> and you see a lot more of this in Order of the Phoenix once like the editors were like, you know what you're doing. Like, you just get on with it, turn in a manuscript. And then suddenly like not a single sentence was finished in all of Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> interesting because I think a lot of other, especially YA writers, caught on to that style because it makes it very tense and very fast-paced and very much like you can't think in complete sentences. The character can't think in complete sentences, so you're you're kind of there with them. Um, I mean, I guess I'd have to look if that had happened much before, but... This use of ellipses was not like some sort of deep reading thing that we found. Like, it hits you in the face when you read this chapter. Seriously. There's so many ellipses in this chapter. It's like and every other paragraph. Yeah, it's just like, It's more frequent than that. It's basically, you know, every third sentence has them. And, <laughs> and this actually, like threw me down a rabbit hole of researching like the grammatical difference between an ellipsis with three dots and an ellipsis with four dots and a dash. So, because so share with the class. Used, they're all used in this chapter. J.K. Rowling is and, like, because what I've noticed with ellipses recently is that uh, my older relatives love use the, love using them in, and it makes every text message sound so much more menacing. Like you send a photo to a family <laughs> send a text and someone's like, I love this dot, dot, dot. And be like, what the hell, Linda? Jeez. <laughs> but so, Irvin, to answer your question, uh, the difference is that um, four ellipses uh, or like four dots in an ellipsis are used at the end of a sentence, whereas three dots are used in the middle of a sentence. And there's actually like debate with within the grammatical community about um, the four dots or whether it should be still three at the end of a sentence, which was interesting. And then um, the it sounds like an ellipsis and a dash are interchangeable. Oh, makes mm. sense. So I don't know. It's I think I think I read somewhere that like one is used in dialogue and the other is used in prose. Um, it's got to be a connotation kind of thing. Yeah. Because I feel like a dash feels more sudden cutting off. Yeah. Whereas ellipses feel a little bit more like drifting. Yeah. Like I've I've noticed that in my emails where I just like make dashes, 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 and I'm like, let me change that for an ellipsis so like it looks like I can actually complete a thought. I'm pretty sure at least in this chapter, um, it's consistent where one is used in dialogue and the other is used in prose. Okay. So anyway, best fun fact for the day. Yay, that is grammar. A fun fact. Yay, punctuation. Because <laughs> I was just so curious. There were so many of them in this chapter. Yeah. Like, like someone should really, like, just start, like, control-effing different punctuation symbols. <laughs> Honestly, if I had the book on PDF, <laughs> I would have done that right now. So, when I was in high school, I did a project, not on Harry Potter, but I did a composition project where we had to, like, analyze... Um, every sentence of a passage and then like every part of speech and like the way the punctuation was used and all this stuff and then write up a, a paper about it. And so like comparing complex sentences versus simple sentences and nouns and verbs and like we had to count every word a bunch of different ways. And it was a fun I project. think I did that in college. It was fun. We should do that with Harry Potter. I bet we'd learn a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it also sounds really tedious. It sounds really exhausting right now. <laughs> I've gotten a lot of mileage out of just, like, searching for patterns and words throughout the series. 
Um, like a couple months ago on the Malfoy episode, I talked a lot about the use of the word mudblood through the series and how that actually like reveals a lot to us about the characters if you just pay attention to that one word. So, yeah. Uh, someone who has a lot of time should undertake this project. <laughs> yes. But speaking of, uh, I guess, things that don't have a lot of time. <laughs> I just tried that segue and I don't I like know. that sexy transition. <laughs> Thank Much you. like 2008, you really tried to make that segue happen and it just didn't happen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, it drove off a cliff just like the guy who just... made segues. Oh, Ooh, that was and then he became a ghost, which is what we're going to talk about right there. Boom, there, boom, I saved it. Wow. <laughs> Listeners, this is what you get when we record late at night. And we're all tired. Um, so so let's talk about this because some interesting things happen here. Um, so obviously Cedric appears first. And I'm just like, okay, I guess I didn't think when I was reading this that it's it's a similar thing to the Resurrection Stone. But I was like, how do they retain memories? How do they know Harry? Like... If they're just like echoes of spells, how do they do that? But I guess if it's more like the resurrection stone. Yeah, that makes sense I don't to know. me. Except I don't think Hmm. It it doesn't feel to me like they are maybe I don't know. I don't think they're exactly the same because it did stand out to me that they specifically say that it is Cedric's torso. And not Cedric. No, no, it is Cedric. They just all fall out torso first. They all, like, blossom. Yeah. How how can one start torso first? That's in the middle. Well, well, no, I think the implication is that, like, the head comes out quickly and then there's a lot of torso. It's like like they're being squeezed through a very small tube and so, like, the torso is like, oh, man, now we have to fit through. Got it, got it, got it, got it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I always thought of them as kind of similar to the Resurrection Stone just because they have, like, agency. Uh, because after the spell is broken, they still linger for a minute to, like, swarm yeah. Voldemort and help Harry. Like, clearly, they're, like, there is something going on there beyond just being, like, a shade or an What's echo. so strange, though, is Frank the Garden Keeper, his response makes it so strange. Because everyone else, when okay. they talk, it seems like they are fully aware of what is going on currently and what has happened since they die. Whereas Frank, what he his first words are, oh, I guess that guy was a wizard. It's like, dog, you've been dead for a while. I don't know how you're just but, not but saying anything. But he also anything. doesn't seem surprised. He also doesn't seem surprised that, like, magic and wizards exist. And so I'm like, can I have the story of Frank Bryce, Joe? Like, how does he know well, these because, things? Because he was listening to, like, Voldemort and Pettigrew talking at the beginning, and they kept talking about wizards and magic. So I feel like he hears that, then he sees them, then the guy raises a wand, says words, there's a big flash of light, and he's dead. Like, Frank Bryce isn't stupid. He can put two and two together. No, but, like, there's no, like, oh, hey, magic must be real, you know? Like, that, that's it's just, that's like, literally what wizard. he says, but, yeah. But not. But that's what doesn't make sense. He's like, I yeah, know. I guess he is a wizard. Guess wizards exist. But, also, he's but one. But there's too much. The thing is, the problem with it is that too much time has passed for this to be what he's saying now. And also, clearly, these other ghosts know more about what's going on because it's not like Lily and James Potter are like, oh, man, we died. Oh, the Harry's 14 now. Like, it's it's not instantaneous. So it's weird that Frank has go- undergone no growth or development since dying, but everyone else has new life experiences. Well, I think Lily and James were paying closer attention <laughs> to current events in the afterlife than Frank Bryce was. I'm just surprised Frank didn't say something else like, oh, man, I'm tired. <laughs> so I don't actually think 
that they do know what has happened since they died. I think they just acclimate really quickly to the environment that they're in because all Bertha says is don't let go now. Don't let him go. Don't let him get you, Harry. Don't let go. So can we talk about Bertha too? Sure. Cause like I forget Bertha is here. Me too. <laughs> First of all, Rude. like I, I totally forgot. And then I was reading this and I was like, Oh, Bertha Jorkins. That's right. <laughs> she's dead. Um, <laughs> but like, how does she know Harry? And why does he not? freak out more that like this lady just knows him is he just like overwhelmed by weird stuff right now or he's famous everyone knows him but he still is usually like uncomfortable and feels weird when people know him well but like dude's distracted at the moment okay this makes me feel like all of the the you know, souls of people that are going to come out of the wand had sort of a little meeting before they all came out. It's like, hey, so Harry is fighting Voldemort right now and we have to support him. So, yeah. And break. Yeah. <laughs> they, they totally had a powwow. <laughs> Go team. Woo woo. The hand is like, what am I doing here, guys? <laughs> How do I fit into the mix? And I'm just picturing like Marlene McKinnon, like waiting for her turn. And she's like, oh, Oh, I, I guess not. I, I guess you guys got this. Okay, cool. Like, I'll, I'll catch you next time. Uh, oh, poor Marlene McKinnon. <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of poor things. <laughs> oh I'm doing a great job with transitions today, guys. You're doing great. I'm so Let's- proud. Let's dive into the thing that makes this chapter so famous, and that is the mistake. The in all caps, the mistake. Yeah, yeah, the, like double underlined, so, the mistake. Yeah, so I actually didn't know this had happened for a long time, funny story, um, because I read a first edition American edition for most of my life. So I didn't even know this was a thing for the longest time, and Funny story, too, when we start getting to our funny stories about this. But um, <laughs> I called my mom last night uh, because the ones I have at my apartment are um, the British editions that I bought. And the ones uh, that I read growing up are still at my parents' house, in which my mom reminded me last night. She was like, uh, these books are mine, not yours. I bought them. <laughs> we actually had that conversation again last night. Anyway, um, I called her like three times because I was like, I need to compare the text. And it significantly changes everything. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can we can just talk about it. So here's the original text readers if you've never heard it. Uh, this is just the selection that mostly got changed. And Harry knew when he saw it who it would be. He knew as though he had expected it from the moment when Cedric had appeared from the wand. Knew because the man appearing was the one he'd thought of more than any other tonight. The smoky shadow of a tall man with untidy hair fell to the ground as Bertha had done, straightened up and looked at him. And Harry, his arms shaking madly now, looked back into the ghostly face of his father. Your mother's coming, he said quietly. She wants to see you. It will be all right. Hold on. And she came, first her head, then her body. A young woman with long hair, the smoky, shadowy form of Lily Potter, blossomed from the end of Voldemort's wand, fell to the ground, and straightened like her husband. She walked close to Harry, looking down at him, and she spoke in the same distant, echoing voice as the others, but quietly, so that Voldemort, his face now livid with fear as his victims prowled around him, could not hear. So I have the, I have the, what it was changed to, if you want me to read that. Go for it, yeah. 
Okay. Um, so this is what is um, published more recently. Oh, wait. My Kindle's the original one. I have it both oh, my Kindle um, and my book. Here. I, I have both. I can do it. Go for uh, it. Because I have the uh, first edition and the paperback. And now another head was emerging from the tip of Voldemort's wand, and Harry knew when he saw it who it would be. He knew as though he had expected it from the moment when Cedric had appeared from the wand. Knew because the woman was the one he'd thought of more than any other tonight. The smoky shadow of a young woman with long hair fell to the ground as Bertha had done, straightened up and looked at him. And Harry, his arms shaking madly now, looked back into the ghostly face of his mother. Your father's coming, she said quietly. Hold on for your father. It will be all right. Hold on. And he came, first his head, then his body. Tall and untidy-haired like Harry, the smoky, shadowy form of James Potter blossomed from the end of Voldemort's wand, fell to the ground, and straightened like his wife. He walked close to Harry, looking down at him, and he spoke in the same distant, echoing voice as the others, but quietly so that Voldemort, his face now livid with fear as his victims prowled around him, could not hear. <laughs> so, so changes everything that, that is a completely different thing yeah and like I got in the paperback and the hardcover so like I caught this like pretty much a few years after uh, it was first published I'm like wait a minute and then went online and found out all about it so the mistake here um, for those who may not be aware is that uh, in the original printing of the book um, the Harry's parents come out in the wrong order because they're supposed to come out in backwards order from when they were killed. Um, and in the first printing, um, first James comes out and then Lily comes out. Um, and I want to read a quote from Joe about this mistake. Lily first, then James. That's how it appears in my original manuscript. But we were under enormous pressure to edit it very fast. And my American editor thought, that was the wrong way around. And he's so good at catching small errors, and I changed it without thinking, then realized it had been right in the first place. We were all very sleep-deprived at the time. So, it seems like the way that she wrote it originally was the correct way. So she and says. Then, <laughs> right, and then... Because I don't know, buy I, it. I believe her, because like she is too damn careful about these things to f*** it up. So here's why I don't believe this. I... I don't believe this, and here's why. The two paragraphs are almost identical. Um, the pronouns are changed, and then the descriptors are changed. So, like, um, the the long hair versus the untidy hair or whatever um, are different. And then, like, husband versus wife. So those all make sense. Those are fairly interchangeable. And we can talk about the significance of who Harry was thinking about all night in a minute. But um, in the text, the biggest differences here are um, when James is speaking, he says, she wants to see you. It will be all right. Hold on. And when Lily is speaking, um, she says, your father's coming. Hold on for your father. It will be all right. And the hold on for your father. It'll be all right feels so impersonal, like any mother could say that yeah. about their son's father. But the she wants to see you is so, like, hard-hitting emotionally. Yes. I cannot imagine that that wasn't what she intended to write and then realized that doesn't make sense. I have to take it out. I and agree. And sort of, you know, had to kill her darling on that. Yeah. 
The other thing, too, that points that out to me is we talked about this at the beginning, but Harry has thought about James multiple times during this fight. And that's the line, right? The man appearing was the one he'd thought of more than any other tonight. He hasn't even really mentioned Lily at And he never does that little poop. In this chapter. (laughs) Right. But he's also not thinking about any other women, like. No. In this night. So but, I feel like that descriptor makes a lot more sense if he thought about Lily more than any other woman, because who the hell else is he thinking about? Versus men, like, there's a lot of men to think about right now. But it's specific. He says multiple times he thinks about his father. He draws on his father. Voldemort tries to use James to um basically shame Harry, and instead it gives Harry strength. And it, he says it's too purposeful. You know, the amount of times that James comes up before this and Harry draws strength from James before this, it's too purposeful for that line. And I think it, I think she knew in her head thematically what she wanted this to be. And then it didn't fit with this. And then someone caught it and was like, wait, that doesn't work. They should be in the other order. And she was like, well, crap, there goes my beautiful little thematic bit that I was going to throw in. Now we have to change it because people will go crazy. Right, so um, just so that we have it, um, the reference to James that I think is the most poignant right before this happens is when he's hiding from Voldemort and then he decides to stand up. He says he was going to die upright like his father. He was going to die trying to defend himself, even if no defense was possible. And that is such a parallel to the way that James died. James was completely defenseless when he died, and yet he stood up to Voldemort the best that he could. And so I think it only makes sense that he's thinking about James in this situation. Yeah. All right. All right. You're convincing me. (laughs) There's also, there's also the parallels too, that he's on Voldemort's father's grave. They're thinking about their fathers. They're thinking about their connection Mm -hmm. in that way. They're paralleled that way. And then all of a sudden it's just like, whoops, throw it out the window, you know? And I also think it's, it's, it brings the, the that theme of Lily that runs throughout the books to have her come last and to have her be the one. That's the other thing that gets changed. Lily is the one in the original copy that tells him what to do, that tells him how to get out of here. Um, then it gets switched to James. Whereas there, I, and that it works better in the original way because that, that's the theme of Lily always giving him the way to survive. You know, those like last words of love. Oh, it just hurts me. It's so it's so beautiful. So here's here's a sticking point though. So Allison, the copy that you have was that a later publication? Like do we have this is is this after my British edition yeah. or my So at this point when the books were coming out, they were no longer publishing them publishing the British editions earlier, right? They were they were coming out at the same time by by this point. Yeah, Goblet of Fire was the first one to come out simultaneously, yeah. Yes. So, do the original British versions have this mistake as well? Because in that quote from Joe, um she refers to her American editor. So Wait, your your American edition is different than this British one I have. Because it says, uh, your father's coming, she said quietly. He wants to see you. It will be all right. Hold on. Wait. So they've changed that. What? Wait. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. I'm getting my American first edition. So what I will say is I listened to the audio book today, and it was the Stephen Uh Fry one, and it is the original mistake 
version where it said your mother is coming soon. So that's based off of the British version. Right. Oh my God, y'all, I have not looked at my hardback goblet in 20 years. So real quick while we're, while Irvin is finding that, um, I have a story about rereading this chapter. So I knew that I was reading this chapter, but I did not remember that the mistake was in this chapter um, until I started reading. And I usually listen on audiobook or I read on my Kindle for the most part. Um, but I have several copies of the books in my house. And something drew me to wanting to read a physical book that night that I was reading this. And I was like, I'm going to read my my original hardbacks that I haven't opened in quite a long time. And so I got cozy on the couch and my boyfriend is there and I'm reading and I go, oh, yeah, the mistake. That's funny. And he didn't know what that was. And so I told him about it and I went to go prove it to him. So I pulled out my um, my paperbacks that I have. I have the Kazu Kibuichi paperbacks. And so I was able to, like, compare them. But it didn't occur to me until after all of this that I was like, wait, why did I want to read the hardback today? I never read from my hardbacks. <laughs> like, the fact that this was the chapter that I just for some reason felt drawn to read from my physical book is very creepy. <laughs> because it's so beautiful. <laughs> it is. Like, everything about it. I, I found it, by the way. Um, so in the first edition, American, uh, James says, your mother's coming. She wants to see you. It will be all right. Hold on. And then Lily says, when the connection is broken, we will linger for only moments, but we will give you time. And yeah, gives the direction. See, that's that's James in this British edition I have. James gives those directions. Whereas in that original American edition, it, it's Lily. So Yeah, she walked close to Harry, looking down at him, and she spoke in the same distant, echoing voice. Yeah, yeah, it's Lily giving the instructions in the American one. Okay, so the the paperbacks that I have are the Kazukibuishi ones. Those are the anniversary the fifteen anniversary. Um so those are published significantly later. Yes. Did they change yeah. it again? I don't know. When did when did my paperbacks come out? Okay, but now I'm curious. What's it going to be in the illustrated edition? Um, listeners, if you didn't know, the illustrated edition of Goblet of Fire will come out just before this episode is released. So I guess if you're banging your head asking why we're not talking about whatever showed up in the illustrated edition, that's why. <laughs> but now I'm curious. I wonder where they're going to go because if Jim K illustrates this scene... <laughs> Is he going to illustrate this scene? Maybe he'll illustrate it when, like, all five are there. So just, like, you know. Right. So he doesn't have no, to deal with No that. awkward questions. So here's a question. Do we think fixing the mistake was the right thing to do? Yes. I don't know. Well, because well, just... These books are so, like, tightly plotted and so well done. At be, like, this is the mistake. Um, so I feel like you just have to fix the mistake ju to just let people continue theorizing and enjoying the books the way we do. And, like, it sucks to lose a bit of thematic relevance, but I feel like it still pretty much works. Yeah, I think it's important to get it technically correct just because I think that... 
I feel like if you're trying to avoid someone well actualing something, you would rather make sure that <laughs> things logistically make sense than the whole intention of like, oh, but Harry never thinks about his mom. Like, I think it's more important to get the factual workings of it right. I think the real problem is JK kind of writing herself into a hole that it has to happen in reverse order. Because if it was just some vague order where they all kind of happen at once, then you can still write it in the way you wanted to and not have to adhere to a strict rule. I just think she's a human being and made a mistake, and here we are. Yeah. And as we've seen with Crimes of Grindelwald, like, honoring the spirit of something when it doesn't make technical sense does not leave anyone happy. (coughs) Minerva McGonagall. That's what I didn't know. Everyone's like, oh my god, McGonagall's not in this movie. It's like, why are we complaining about more McGonagall? What is going on? What has gone wrong (laughs) in the world? Because it's wrong. Because she shouldn't be born at that point. So that's That's the thing. is like, even if you do something objectively amazing by giving us more of the best character in the whole dang series, people are going to (laughs) freak out if it doesn't make sense logistically. So yes, I think correct it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Here's here's my thing though. It feels like a lazy fix then. I feel mm-hmm. like you it Fair. could have been re- it could have been rewritten to logistically make sense but keep that thematic beauty. Yeah. But it feels like it was just someone caught the error, people started catching on and they were like we have to fix this quick so we're just going to mix the pronouns in the name, you know. Control F James and it, replace it, with Lily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it feels it feels lazy where I'm like Come on, it's like one paragraph. We could we could have done a little revision here, so well, it would have been nice. But our, okay, to play devil's advocate on that one, she has been loath to mess with the Harry Potter text in any way. That's true. Since publishing it, because like she said, um, in many views that like she wishes she could go back and edit Order, Order of the Phoenix because it could have done with some editing. Like I'm sure there are a million things she wishes she could fix. Mark Evans, hello. <laughs> uh, but I think. It, she decided it was more important to keep the integrity of the text that that the whole world consumed and obsessed over uh, rather than fix these little or even not yeah. so little things. But I think it loses some of that integrity if you just switch things out, you know? I feel like she could have kept the integrity of what she was doing and also get the logistics right, and it could have all worked together if she had just revised this paragraph. Or even if her editor just revised this paragraph a little bit, so, you know? Like, this I, I feel like it would have been a, like, Han shot first type thing. <laughs> so this makes oh, me wonder. Um, we, we know that one of the reasons why she after this book said, like, no more deadlines, I write at my own pace, is that, like, throughout this book, she had to basically rewrite the whole thing to put Rita yeah. Skeeter in place of the Weasley cousin that what that she originally what? wrote. What? Um, I've never heard about this. Okay, all right. I'll, so, I'll do it on my so, own time. Okay. You've I'll never heard of, what's time. her name, Mafalda? <laughs> no, 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 because you may not be the only one that doesn't okay, know. Okay, okay. Um, so the way that this book was originally written, she wrote a Weasley cousin that... I forget all the details that like she's a squib, isn't she? No, I don't no, think so. No, she go, she ends up sorted in Slytherin. No, I no, think. no. She's she's a wizard. No, she's not a squib. I'm sorry. She's a Muggleborn. Like she's he, she's the daughter of that accountant cousin or whatever. Something. There, yeah. There's some weirdness with this Weasley I, I, cousin. I, her name was Mafalda, I think. Yeah, and and she knew a lot of things, um, and she was like a plot movement device, revealing a lot of information uh, to Harry, and 
at some point, Joe realized that there was just no way that this character would know all these things and that she was being too heavy-handed with this character. And so she instead replaced this character with Rita Skeeter because um, the things that Rita knows, it's more plausible why she would know them because she's an animagus and can, you know, hide and find all sorts of juicy tidbits. Um, but she had gotten most of the way through the book by the time she decided to do this. And so she had to rewrite the entire book, removing a, basically a main character um, and and putting in a different one. And she was writing to deadlines at this point. And this book is massive. And so rewriting the book, that much of it, uh, was really, really stressful. It significantly changed. Yeah, and it significantly changed a lot of the structure of a lot of things. Right. And so it was and, like... And so after this book came out, um, she basically said to, like, her publishing companies, like, no more deadlines. I write on my own, at my own speed, on my own terms. You get it when you get it. And then yeah. there was a huge, um, a huge break between book four and book five while she took her time the three on book five. summer. Right. Yeah. And, and it basically, it basically was when, like, the fandom exploded. Right. Because right. everyone was anticipating. Well, that's the other thing. After Goblet of Fire, she could afford to, right? Because I feel like the first three books, right. she just sort of kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and yeah. for, like, people to decide they hate Harry Potter. And Goblet of Fire, that was the first midnight release. That was the first simultaneous transatlantic release. Like, it went completely bananas. And J.K. Rowling is like, okay, okay, I, I think I think we're going to be okay, so I'm going to do it the way I do it. Yeah, I think it made sense for her to do it the way she did. Right. So um, I'm wondering, we know that the Weasley cousin rewrite is is the main reason why she decided no more deadlines. But this makes me wonder if it wasn't a part of her reasoning as well. Because, you know, if I yeah. were her, I would never want this to happen ever again. Yeah. To, like, get down to the wire on a deadline and then have to just scrounge something together that you're not proud of to fix it. Yeah. I always thought it was much more this thing than the Weasley cousin because, like, she's deleted characters and replaced them before, um, and she did it again. But, like, this is sort of the first and last time she ever made a mistake of this magnitude. Like, I mean, there have been typos here and there. Like, you know, Tom Riddle was Slytherin's um, ancestor, that kind of thing. But never, like, one that actually had big, far-reaching plot implications. Well, and I think it shows to some extent, too, just how nitpicky people were starting to get, right? It was It was kind of the beginning of that, where we were, like, everyone was so focused on every little tiny detail that it had to be that right, because yeah. otherwise the world imploded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, it's something that I have realized as someone that came to this fandom later on and not really fully understanding everything. Harry Potter fans love details a lot, and people will get mad at you. Oh, we're people crazy get mad about at you it. Any details wrong? There was an episode of Potterless where we were talking about Gobble to Fire, and my guest and I called Harry 13 instead of 14, and I still get emails to it every day. <laughs> Every day. People are like, hey, I'm on episode 15 of Potterless, which came out three years ago. I don't know if anybody's uh, letting you know, but Harry's actually 14, not 13. Yo, 
kids that are 13 and 14 are the same. Nothing is different. You're you're <laughs> you're bad at age 13, you're bad at age 14. It's the same but like that's like the most minor thing that doesn't matter at all and people get very upset. So I think it like I understand why the reaction to something not making logistical sense would be it just cuz that's the type of people that obsess over Harry Potter, the people that like really want every detail to line up. So if you've created mm-hmm. this magical thing where it's in reverse order and the reverse order is wrong, it's going to bother people. Well, and we we do all this theorizing especially when not all the books had come out yet. Right. Right? Like that was what what we did was theorize yep. yeah. and when you don't have much to go on, right, you you have to assume that what you have is correct. Well, and by that point, too, we had caught on that she would put what seemed like an insignificant detail, right. a name drop, and it would become crazy important two books later, you know? And this so is I, how I fell for Ludo Bagman in book four. Is I was like, this guy's going to be, he just seems like he's peppered in, but he's clearly going to be the big villain. But no, he was just peppered in. <laughs> oh, he's a brilliant red herring. Oh, she incredible. So well. Absolutely yeah. incredible. Well, but that's, I mean, that's how we ended up with Mark Evans, right? <laughs> right, because we were just too careful. Like, I was on a panel Wait, at Mystic. Who's Mark Evans? <laughs> that's another fun oh. one. <laughs> Uh, Mark Evans is a kid Dudley beats up at the beginning of Order of the Phoenix with the same last name as Lily. And that was just... And so everyone freaked out. Everyone freaked out. And they were like, Mark Evans is related to Lily somehow. How? Why? He he was the answer to everything. Joe had to put it on her website, right? Where she was like, Mark Evans is not related to Lily. I just was dumb and forgot that that's her name. She's like, I'm going into hiding. Like, my kids are packed. I've put on a fake mustache. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, Mark Evans is a thing. He's my new favorite character in the whole yeah. series. I was on a panel at Mysticon <laughs> with other uh, authors, and like they were pretty much talking about how Joe Rowling like ruined the bell curve for all authors going forward. <laughs> like before Harry Potter, you could just like you know make a few mistakes and it would all be okay if the book was good. And ever since Harry Potter, like all authors keep like you know journals and like story bibles and spreadsheets because like they know they know they're be that one reader who emails you four years later well actually well i mean uh because joe rowling trained us well we can't let it go the number of students in harry's year like no <laughs> uh. we can't let that go we can't let the lost day go like we're still on about it <laughs> yeah but i but the, the yeah. other problem and, and this is more for jk and harry potter stuff is that very rarely does jk rowling admit that she is a human and makes mistakes i think the only true instance of it is the pottermore article that's like whoops sorry i was bad at time travel my bad about the time turners guys i'm not gonna write uh, or have uh, approve a play where the entire major plot point is time turners what but like i think the other thing is she it never admits like hey guys it was my first book series. I wasn't perfect. And I think that's what makes people hold her to this high esteem is that she kind of carries herself as this infallible person that never makes mistakes. And like, it's OK, JK. Like, it's all right to be like, hey, I goofed up a little bit here and there. But because because she doesn't she, open that door. She used to be a lot better yeah. at that. Um, Like back when the books were coming out, like she admitted the Mark Evans thing. Uh, She admitted this mistake. Like she was like, yeah, y'all like y'all are a bit too good for my writing and I'm trying to keep up. Um, and I think once she joined Twitter and bought into her own hype, that's when she decided she was a goddess. I think it has to do more with the corporate, I can't say that word right now. You know what I'm saying? Corporatization. 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 Yes. That one. Um, 
I think it has to do more with that, actually, than her. But that's me, and that's a totally different subject. And we're getting way away from the chapter. I think it makes sense. Yeah. So this happens. Whoever tells Harry the instructions of how he can get away um, does. <laughs> and Harry Harry breaks the spell after Cedric gives one heartbreaking last request. Let's all just give a moment for Cedric. All right. I'll break my body I'm going to break the moment here. Uh, like... <laughs> Look, Cedric, I get that you want to bring your body back. Yo, it, that's a kind of a big ask, dude. Like, how about you just let Harry live? <laughs> what are they going to do with your body? <laughs> a lot. Like, bury it? I, I don't know, man. Like, get out of there. Uh. Okay, keep in mind Voldemort can make Inferi. Like, yeah. I get not wanting to be an uh, Inferius. I think, I think maybe Cedric sort of could have prefaced it with like, hey, man, if it's not that big of a deal, if you could. Cause right, if convenient. If I was Harry and Cedric <laughs> says, hey, bring my body back, I would have yelled immediately, I'm kind of in the middle of something here. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I was, I just. Yeah, uh, but but Harry blames himself for the death. Right, so I guess. I, I, Gryffindor nonsense. Yeah, you know. I guess it's just. It's more important for Harry to get out of there in one piece than it is for him to bring his body back. Like, I understand the sentimentality of it and his parents and he's a kid, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know. I think a, a number one priority well, is like, please don't die, Harry. I think to some expect, actually, this is one of the times I think Dan Radcliffe did a great job. Um, how they do this in the movie where he won't let go and he's like Ooh, so yeah, traumatized yeah, yeah. where it, it's the last thing he can do for this boy that he feels like he couldn't help enough ever and it's harry feels like it's his fault cedric said obviously um and he's like i have to do something you know like it like i couldn't save him so i have to do something else you know like there, there has to be something i sure. can do and i think harry in some ways um because we get this we get this with um when sirius dies and we also get this when harry um visits godric's hollow and he visits his uh parents graves harry understands even subconsciously the need for closure in death. And when he doesn't have that closure, Harry himself is very distraught. Um, but when he can finally get that closure and he can finally grieve, he finds himself being able to move forward. And so I think to some, ex to some extent, even subconsciously at this point, Harry understands Cedric's parents are going to need Cedric's body. Harry is going to need Cedric's body there. Harry is going to need that himself to be able to grieve and to be able to move on. Or he is always going to wonder what he could have done. So and what would and have happened? And Cho Chang also needs uh, Cho Chang needs a <laughs> therapist at the school. I'm so upset at Hogwarts for not having so that. They though. should have. We don't look. We don't need to be teaching them muggle studies or history of magic or arithmancy. We need to be having a guidance counselor that is far more important. We absolutely need to teach them muggle studies. Well, I sure. I take that one back. I was more thinking of puffs where muggle studies is showing them pictures of toasters. But I mean, I that mean, was the first. It lesson. was the '90s. It was the 90s. We weren't really talking course, about these things then. So, like, meh. <laughs> so, Allison, what you were saying about um, Harry feeling like he had to bring Cedric's body back, I agree with everything you said, except for the fact that Cedric asked him to. I think that if Harry had done that without Cedric asking him to, then I think all the things that you said make perfect sense. 
But the fact that Cedric asked him to, I have to agree with Mike that that's a little, like, concerning. Well... I just think it's a big ask when you have know. not only you have one person trying to murder you and then all of his friends trying to actively stun you. And then this ghost is like, oh, hey, by the way, could you uh, bring my body back for my parents? Like, the, ah. the only thing I can think of is that like these these spirits or whatever they are um, know that they're going to be able to rush Voldemort and protect Harry for long enough for this to be possible. If they have confidence in that, then I guess it, it is excusable. If they had that meeting like you talked about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if they had Marlene McKinnon, then, you know, who knows what Harry could have accomplished. Okay, this is another one. What What Harry. is Marlene McKinnon? <laughs> oh, she's a member of the Order of the Phoenix um, who was murdered personally oh. by Voldemort. Wait, when? Who was she related to? Uh, the McKinnons who were also murdered by Death Eaters. Yeah, uh, but it's it's one of his classmates or something. Nope. Kate McKinnon, she's the really funny nope. one. She then goes on to go into North America. <laughs> 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 they decided to get away from that and the family came over and that's how we got <laughs> yeah. Kate McKinnon. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's when Moody's showing Harry the photo of the First Order and he's going over like everyone's grisly death and he's like, the Pruitts, we only found bits of him. And then Marley McKinnon oh, that's what Voldemort I'm thinking the murdered person. her yeah. personally. I am going to have to give... I, I'm thinking of the Pruitts because that's Molly's brother. Yeah. I got to say, Irvin, before I go to Harry Potter trivia, I'm just going to give you a phone call and just tell me everything, because I feel like these are going to be future last round questions. Like, what was the name of the person that Dudley beat up in the beginning of book five? Oh, I'm the phone a friend (laughs) at trivia. Like, yeah, I'm the friend you can phone. Okay, good. I will be. If they're right, I'm still salty about some trivia where they were wrong. Oh, Uh, I know that's the whole thing with the Trivial (laughs) Pursuit game. Uh, I posted like my sister got it for me as a Christmas gift one year and I put it on uh, my Instagram story and so many replies were like, oh, this game is so bad. They mess up stuff. This card's wrong. This card's wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. So like when the New York City Harry Potter meetup plays trivia, I'm no longer allowed to play. I'm the fact checker. <laughs> hey, you're doing a service. I am. Yeah. Like, frankly, I'm, I'm just as entertained because I'm just like, come on, you know this. No, obviously it's X, Y, Z. <laughs> anyway, speaking of getting out of there. Um, so Cedric gives his last request, which now apparently we're split on, whatever. Um, <laughs> none of you are Gryffindors. I'm the most no, Gryffindor ever, which is why I think Cedric's Hufflepuff move is a bunch of crap. <laughs> <laughs> none of you are Gryffindors and it shows, <laughs> except for me. <laughs> anyway. That's fair. We had a whole very lengthy episode about it. I am not a I finally did my video. And you know what I got? Yeah. Did you see what I got? I did see what you got. It, I Frankly, I just saw like a big paragraph of houses and burns and primaries. And I'm like, oh, that's a lot. Burned Hufflepuff primary, Gryffindor model primary, burned Gryffindor secondary, Hufflepuff model secondary. I was like, I'm yeah. just a conundrum, aren't I? See, and I got full puff. I got burned Hufflepuff primary and regular Hufflepuff secondary. Guys, guys, and guys, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so so Harry Harry breaks free. Um, he runs to Cedric's body first, and then he uses Accio to save the day um, and get the cup back. Um, and there's first of all, I love that. Um, like all the things that Fake Moody taught him throughout Goblet of Fire are all the things he relies on here. Like, yeah, Crush kind of screwed it all up for him, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Which like. 
I don't know if Voldemort, like, was detail-oriented enough to, like, wonder what Crouch was teaching the kids, but if he was, that would have been a really awkward talk. Master, I did the thing! Are you proud of being like, you taught him all these things! Why would you teach him all the things? Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, Moody taught Harry to resist the Imperious Curse, which he does um, during this whole battle sequence. And then Moody told him, like, just use a simple spell to get what you need. Use the summoning charm. And he uses that. And the other spell Harry uses was also taught to him by a really nasty Death Eater, Snape, who taught him Expelliarmus. Ah. So really, it's the Death Eaters who equipped Harry best to fight against Voldemort, which kind of makes sense in its own weird way. Hey, what does is, what is Dumbledore say? Tyrants put together their own downfall, right? Yeah. When does Dumbledore say that? Oh, uh, Half-Blood Prince. Uh, yeah. When he's talking about, um, Harry, do you have any idea how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? Uh, they always know that eventually someone will rise up against them. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yes. So my favorite part of this this part of the scene is that Harry very briefly considers carrying Cedric. Uh, and then he's like, uh, Cedric is really heavy. What do I do? <laughs> this is just one of those, like... Cinnamon roll Harry moments. He, well, he like, doesn't always think about magic first before he... Then it dawns on him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I have a wand. I, I can do that. And just cinnamon roll Harry. I love him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I bet, though, if he had to carry Cedric, he would have. Oh, 100%. He would have. Yeah. He, would, he, would he have done it if he didn't think he would survive? Yes. yes. I agree. <laughs> I also agree. That was a very emphatic yes. <laughs> well, also, I think the thing that, like, trip, tripped him up, no pun intended, was the broken leg, right? Because I feel like otherwise yeah. he could have just, like, you know, dragged Cedric's body. You know, like, it wouldn't have been a sexy fireman lift or anything, but, like, he could have done the job uh, if it weren't for the broken leg. Honestly, the broken leg probably helped him because otherwise he wouldn't have tried to use Accio, and who knows if he would have made yeah. it. I forgot his leg was broken. Yeah, so so does he on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an adrenaline thing, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he uses the portkey, and the portkey takes him back to Hogwarts. And there's been a lot of hubbub um, on the internet years ago about how portkeys work and why this one works differently and just what all is going on there. So I thought we could um, unpack that quickly. And I, then... I don't get why there's hubbub. I don't think it's that, like, out of the realm of possibility that a port key I don't either. would, like, on second touch, go back to where it started. Well, okay, so the first weird thing is that all the other port keys we see uh, transport someone at a predetermined time. This is the only one that works upon being touched, which there's two different kinds of port keys. Moving right along. I think the thing is you got to consider what this port key is being used for. This port key was set up by Voldemort and the Death Eaters for a specific thing. In their idea, Harry was going to touch it. Voldemort was going to kill Harry. And then what's Voldemort going to do? We see what he tries to do in book seven when he thinks he's defeated Harry is he goes in front of the whole school and tries to brag to everyone that he killed Harry. So it would make sense that even if this isn't how standard port keys work, the specific port key that the Death Eaters and Voldemort have set up for this task is, hey, let me touch it again so I can go back and you know, kick down the front door of Hogwarts and say, look at me, I killed Harry. Like, it feels like a very on-brand Voldemort Death Eater move. 
See, but but Voldemort wouldn't do that. Voldemort was trying to keep a low profile. Yeah. Like, I think Voldemort's plan was to send Harry's body back, mangled by Nagini, to be like, look, he met a bloody creature in the maze. Uh, It could happen to anyone, but uh, your chosen one's gone. I think it's regardless. He wants to send the receipts to Hogwarts that Harry is dead, whether he's there or Harry's there or whatever. So I think that's why it's set up the way it is. And if it's not the way traditional port keys work, yeah, because most port keys aren't used to orchestrate someone death yeah so we we only see port keys as far as i know being used um for groups up until this point um and so it would make sense that a group port key wouldn't go until a certain time because if it goes when it's touched then it leaves the rest of the group behind whereas whereas a port key meant for an individual can just go when it's touched because it doesn't have to wait for anybody. And this port key was intended to just work for an individual, Mm -hmm. and it just so happened that Harry and Cedric touched it at the exact same time. We see another port key in Deathly Hallows, the hairbrush, um, that Harry uses to get to um, the... Where do they go? The burrow? The burrow. Yeah, after the Battle of Seven Pots. That's a timed one, is it? But we also see one, yeah, at the end of the Department of Mysteries battle. Is it a timed one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, we actually don't know. So he pretty much makes the port key and gives it to Harry. Um, Oh, yeah, but you're right. He does count down three, two, one. So, yeah, it's a timed one. No, no, I'm sorry. We're talking about two different ones. The one in Deathly Hallows is a time one. The one that Dumbledore gives is not. I think that he counts down just to prepare Harry to, like, go <laughs> yeah that that one's ambiguous um like it could be timed for like five seconds from now or it could be a touch one uh it kind of works either way oh yeah it's totally a time one i just looked it up and it's glowing like it's gonna leave without him mm-hmm. okay uh but anyway so the other thing is i think the port key was always meant to go to hogwarts like they're supposed to take the champions back to the grounds i think what crouch and the death eaters did was add an intermediate stop yeah, I think you're right, because when they land back, everyone, like, cheers and celebrates. Right, right. like, that was expected. I don't think the cup was supposed to be a porky at all. I think that was not intentional. By who? Well, no, because the other thing is the implication is only the headmaster can set up porkies into Hogwarts. I think that's one of those, like, Hogwarts protections um, that, you know, just like the barrier against flying in uh, and so on. So I think Maybe Dumbledore it, would have to uh, set it up if it was going to port key to Hogwarts. I don't think it, Maybe it wasn't a port key per se, but maybe it somehow was supposed to transfer them out of the maze. Because otherwise, then what are you going to do? They either have to, like, fly out or, like, someone has to bring them out or they have to, like, Yeah, that'd be really anticlimactic <laughs> otherwise. Like, we did it! We did it over here! We won! <laughs> I promise I got there first. <laughs> I didn't knock someone out on the way out. You know? Yeah. Uh, just like this was something I had to consider, um, when I was writing my book about Dumbledore, because like, talk a lot about this whole climax goblet of fire, and then someone was like, wait, 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 how do port keys work? I'm like, how do port keys work? So, yeah, spent time on this. Um, anyway, uh, so there was, um, many, many moons ago, there was an interview with Joe Rowling about this chapter. Um, and this find, uh, all credit goes to Josie Kearns of the Harry Potter Companion for, like, finding all these interviews. Uh, but so she's talking about how the climax of Goblet of Fire is really frightening. And she says, but it's supposed to be frightening. And if you don't show how scary that is, you cannot show how incredibly brave Harry is. 
He's really brave, and he does, I think, one of his bravest things in this book. He can't save Cedric, but he wants to save Cedric's parents' additional pain. He wants to bring back the body and treat it with respect. And so then the interviewer says, Saving Cedric's body reminded me of the Hector Patroclus Achilles triangle in the Iliad. And Rowling actually replies, That's where it came from. That really, really, really moved me when I read that when I was 19. The idea of the desecration of a body, a very ancient idea. I was thinking of that when Harry saved Cedric's body. Yeah. Um, and then the interviewer goes on to say, and then you go and emotionally decimate your readers with the murdered parents thing. And Rowling says, uh, and says they were in tears. Rowling says, me too. It was the first time I cried writing a Harry Potter book. I got pretty upset. So guys, feelings in this chapter. Definitely. It, there's, a, I mean, it's a pretty weighty chapter. Like, like I said at the beginning, this is, this is the chapter where Harry the boy becomes Harry the man. And it's tragic in a way because we know he's 14, but it also is so heroic and beautiful and heartbreaking all at the same time. This is really the the opportunity for Joe to throw out there that bravery is not the lack of fear, that Harry is really scared mm-hmm. in this moment. Yes. And he is still brave in spite of that. Um, and I really love that about this chapter. This chapter is horrifying, like really, really scary. Um, and it's, it packs a punch. It's so short, but after reading this chapter, even just out of context, like I I felt really unsettled after reading it. I kind of had to like, you know, read some Pride and Prejudice to to (laughs) relax after reading this chapter because it really got me worked up. And I think it's pretty incredible that she can do that in such a short space of time. I think this chapter itself is the one that really is the tonal shift in the Harry Potter series. It's something that I've talked about and a lot of people have talked about. And and for me, this is where the series shifts from being children's books to young adults books is that like this is the whole tonal shift in in my mind. I always have like colors associated with reading the series. And up until this point, everything was like yellow and bright and green and everything's cool. And then now it's like dark, faded, muted purple, like everything is scary and terrifying death is real so i think that starting from a little bit before this pretty much once cedric dies everything changes because at this point you've got yeah you realize how much higher the stakes truly are in this series is that people can die children can die then you've got the big bad that has been alluded to and you've only fought parts of him in the beginnings of the series now you're actually he's really back and you're really fighting voldemort and you truly see what he's capable of so this is the part that really kicks starts the books into being a little bit more serious and this is where that tone shifts and i think this chapter in particular is what really kicks that into gear and that's why like you were saying it's a little unsettling yeah the innocence of the series dies with cedric yes yeah absolutely does and it's interesting because harry's parents died too but harry was so young that i think he feels kind of removed from that situation definitely where like cedric's death just comes crashing down and is so real. Yeah. I think that's a I think that's a great example. The the fact that after Cedric's death he can see the Thestrals means that like this definitely affected him in a different way. And and up until this point, other than his parents, you know, um the characters are always finding a way out right at the last second. 
And while Harry does escape here, we we start to see the consequence of... Yeah, it comes people. at a cost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I was talking with my friends about the end of Prisoner of Azkaban, and that's where the transition begins, because the first two are very happy ending, tidy little bow, like, yay! And the Prisoner of Azkaban ends on a very melancholy note, and then Goblet of Fire just ends on, like, a downer. Um, and this yeah. is also the first uh, book where we don't end with the House Cup, because, like, the series has moved past that, um, past that being Harry's, like, primary concern. Um, and I think that that's a very big symbol. I also think this is a big point, too, because this is, I think, the point where Harry starts to feel guilt for everything that happens around him and because of him. Um, he feels so incredibly guilty about Cedric mm-hmm. that, I mean, it, he carries it with him. Whereas with his parents, I think... His parents were fighting Voldemort. They, they knew yeah. what they were getting into almost like obviously they didn't want to die but like they they were signing up to fight Voldemort and Cedric was not and he also he also didn't he doesn't remember them whereas I think with Cedric he he remembers enough about Cedric and I think he wishes he had known Cedric better so he could carry that on in a similar way that he carries on James and Lily's memories. Even though he didn't know them. Even though he didn't know them. (laughs) Yeah. But, but he still carries on their memories in a way, you know? And I feel like Mm -hmm. some of the guilt he has over Cedric is the fact that he's like, this was cut too soon. I didn't even know him that well. And yet he died because of me. Yeah. And so that definitely brings up a lot of that guilt for Harry, which I mean, impacts everything he does from this point. Yeah. If he had if he only had a few more kids, we would have gotten to Cedric. I mean, you know, kid number 4 would have been Dobby Hedwig Potter, but I feel like eventually <laughs> we would have gotten to Cedric. We we really see this come up again in Deathly Hallows where Harry is determined not to let anybody else die for him. Yeah. I mean, we have some more deaths in between, but... <laughs> yeah, that's where he draws the line in book seven. <laughs> this one hits right. very differently, though, right? Because all the other deaths are adults, like fighters dying yeah. in the middle of a war. Cedric was an innocent. Like, he right. never signed up for any of this. Like, he was there for a, you know, sports tournament, and then someone died. It's it's tragic. It really is a tragic chapter. Yeah, you've got Cedric and Colin Creevy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's also really weird to read this chapter out of context. Because, like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to reread the books, like, you know, you know, as a full reread. And whenever I get to the climax, I'm just like, all right, now go, 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 go. And especially Goblet of Fire, because it is impossible to put down the cliffhangers. Yeah. She leaves. Like, Lord Voldemort had risen again. Yes, I'm going to keep reading after that sentence. Um, so I never... I mean, I'm going to take a breath first and be like, what? But then I'm going to keep going. Yeah. So I, I never just isolated this chapter, and it was a very, very weird experience. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about before you got here about... Um, how this chapter like happens right in the middle of action. There's no yeah. really break on either side. Yeah, because I, I just sort of think of like, you know, this and the two chapters preceding it as just like one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Did we do it? Yeah. I mean, we're <laughs> just going to all go cry tonight, I guess. Where we're <laughs> yeah. leaving this. You know, the this part in the movie is always like a, a little bit ridiculous to me. And then, yeah. like, right after that, because, like, Dan crying over 
over Cedric's body is just like, oh my uh-huh, God. Uh-huh. and so I, I kind of laugh at that a little bit. But then between Harry and Amos, right? It's just but like, then right after that, like Amos gets me every time. I know it's ridiculous, but he gets me every time. No, it does. <laughs> Harry, get, Harry gets me personally too. That like refusal to let him go, yeah. that one gets me too. Um, but between the two of them, it's just like sob fest three thousand. My favorite member of Outcast. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, and with that, Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Thank today. you so much for having me and letting me make a bunch of silly jokes and stuff on this very analytical podcast. I feel uh, I feel very grateful to have been on here. And this is a long time in the making. And I'm glad I finally finished the book so that I can talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, because now you're allowed to have spoilers. I know, it's so. great. And I can talk about things and not have to preface discussions, whether it be on podcasts or panels at conventions with, hello, I'm on page this of book six, you know, so I can actually have a full discussion. So no, this was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We had a blast. And listeners, uh, go on over and listen to Potterless because it is fantastic. And you can go, you know, bug Mike about whatever mistakes he makes on episode 15. Please do. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready to take your emails and, and reply to them saying, thank you so much. This episode is two and a half years old. But no, I'm very biased. But I think the podcast is very good. And I think you should all check it out. Do you just have like like a said response that you just copy and paste and send out when people honestly? I should do it. I did do the thing on Instagram where you can uh, do the auto. Like if you just type a three letter combination, you can have an autofill. And one of the ones I did set up was for that specific mistake. I forget what the code is. I think I I think if I type in G O F, I can autofill it to. Yeah, my bad. We messed up the Harry's age. So I've done it on Instagram, but I should I should make Gmail I should make Gmail canned responses for all those things. Yeah. (laughs) See, but just like Joe Rowling, you're not going to go back and change the entire episode. Uh, It is. It's just a lot. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. See, you can relate to her. Unlike Joe Rowling, I admit my fault. You should just do like a Slughorn's memory where you just record a. Like weird. Yeah, I would love to retroactively go <laughs> back and, and put editing Mike into the old episodes where editing Mike didn't exist in Potterless, but I just I've too I'm too busy making the new episodes <laughs> to go back. <laughs> we know that feeling. Oh uh, yeah. Unlike unlike Dorola, <laughs> yeah, I don't get, get paid one. before I make stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of new episodes of the show. Oh, I thought you were going to say speaking of getting paid. (laughs) Um. (laughs) We're not allowed to record this late at night anymore, guys. You're only allowed to record this late at night. Guys, the last time we recorded this late at night, it was like the best episode to ever happen, according to our listeners. And I also, I also was sleep deprived that episode too. And yeah. I'm sleep deprived today. And that's why I think it's going to be the best episode ever. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> our next topic will be Lily and James Potter. We're going to talk all about Lily and James. Um, I don't know, maybe more about the mistake, more about how the fact that they look twice how old they should be in the movies. I don't know. It's going to be awesome, though. Yeah. And if you want to be on the show to discuss uh, pretty much anything, visit our website, alohamorapodcast.com, and choose Be On The Show. 
follow the instructions to send us your audition, and you can also visit the Topic Submit page to tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. You just need a microphone and a pair of headphones, and if you're chosen to guest host, we'll walk you through the rest. If you would like to contact us, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MN. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore. Our website is alohomorapodcast.com. Our YouTube is youtube.com slash MN, And you can email us at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And one more reminder to go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash alohomora. We want to thank Manitoda again for sponsoring this episode. Yay! Thanks, Manitoda! Yay! And make sure you head over there to see all of our special features at our higher tiers. Um, I just recorded a video where I did the Sorting Hat Chats quiz um, so you can see just how damaged of a human apparently I am according to that quiz um, and how much of a conundrum so that's fun uh, but you can sponsor us for as little as one dollar a month and we've got lots of cool things to check out there I'm Beth, I'm Allison and I'm Irvin, thank you for listening to episode 282 of Alohomora. Harry, let go, sweetheart you're ready, open the Dumbledore Like if you if ju- uh, if you need me to just rant about about why Quidditch is awful for forty minutes, it will happen. But I'm trying to do your <laughs> listeners a favor. <laughs> <laughs> he should be here like Erwin! any minute now. <laughs> when it comes to his son, he's still under the stairs. <laughs> It's really cute, okay? And I listened to it on the way home today. We also could talk about how the movie completely blows this fight scene. I mean, it's not... It's one of the worst movies, so... Yeah, and this scene in particular... I remember, like, because I had not... When I was reading the books, I didn't immediately watch the movies... Um, or I would wait until I was done with the book to watch the movie. And I remember after reading this chapter, I broke that rule. And I was like, I got to see this. This sounds really cool. And then I looked at the YouTube video and it was so bad. They didn't levitate off the ground or anything. It was awful. <gasps> yeah, they do. Don't they? They don't. No. Not in the movie. Oh, they no. don't. Not at all. Which It's been a while since like, I watched this That is one. the coolest part of the fight. And you've decided to cut that. What are you doing? What are you doing? They levitate into the air. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in this movie, we get, let go, let go, <laughs> Harry, let go. <laughs> so, I mean, that's gold. So. I don't even remember that, but that's I'm excited true. to go back and watch it. Because now, now that I'm doing the actual movie episodes for Potteros, I'm like doing them with a fine tooth comb and like overanalyzing yeah. the, the films to death and like looking at every difference. Yeah. So I'll be excited to do that. She calls him sweetheart too, doesn't she? It's very cute. Is that Oh, Lily? she might. She, might, she says, sweetheart, sweetheart, let go. Let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Lily, who is a 48-year-old woman playing a 23-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Bye.